That's incredible. And I don't really want to just gloss over that. I want people to take just a second and think about what your job is and then compare that to somebody giving you a freaking cyanide pill, a knife and a parachute and saying, <laughs> all right, with the, with these tools, go fight a war. Like, yeah, holy yeah. crap. If anyone wanted to look up the Australian War Memorial, uh, they have a website. Uh, there's heaps and heaps of books and, and, and stories and, and little documentaries and whatnot on, on guys who are actually doing that, you know. And a lot of them are never seen again, um, whether it be injured on parachuting into a jungle terrain, captured by headhunters, you know, that were working with the Japanese um, or the Japanese would get them and, you know, shoot them as spies or cut their heads off. A lot of them guys were never seen again. A lot of These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. Today I have with me Al Kidner, all the way from Australia. How are you, sir? Good, James. Good, good, mate. I'm doing well, uh, albeit, um, yeah, dealing with what everyone else is dealing with in the world with the uh, shutdown of COVID and, and whatnot. But yeah, I'm, I'm doing fine, man. What's that like in your area? Uh, well, I live in Queensland, which is a northern state. We had our borders uh, shut, then we opened them, then we've just reshut them again to the other states. Uh, we have next to, I think we have like three cases, but all our southern states like New South Wales, uh, Victoria, Victoria in the main at the moment has had a massive second wave, nothing like what you guys have in the States, but for our limited exposure to the virus and whatnot, I think the last couple of days running, they've had you know anywhere from 15 to 20 people die in a day, which is like more than what we normally have seen over here, which again, is not dropping the ocean compared to what the States or Europe or anywhere else has. But for us, obviously it's alarming because yeah, we just don't want to go crazy. But, you know, not to be a conspiracy theorist, but it um, depends on, on what news outlet you, you watch and, yeah, on the severity of it and all the rest of it. Yeah, it, it's much the same here. And, of course, I have no idea what kind of news you're getting about the states in Australia. But, you know, in my county, which, you know, takes five hours to drive across, there's been mm-hmm. one person who has died of, of COVID throughout all this so yeah yeah that's what i sort of don't get with it all and not to have the whole covid conversation but obviously it's where the world is but um it's it's more of a case where i just feel for like a lot of the regional towns and you know like we we're a vast and spread out country here and you've got like a lot of inland towns and, and small cities that have no cases of it but because they're in a certain state they have to follow the state-run guidelines so a lot of these small businesses are being crippled, whether they be, you know, mum and dad businesses, uh, service stations, gas stations, whatever, uh, you know, hotels, pubs, clubs, all that, they're all feeling it. Um, and because people in the city, you know, can't follow a few, a few simple rules and and whatever, what is the end state of all this? I don't know whether we throw our hands up in the air and just deal with it uh, or we continue with the crazy lockdown and and all that mask stuff. So yeah, I, I don't know, mate. I, I'll let some smarter folk look after look after that. 
How big is Queensland? Oh, we if you have a look on a map, we're a decent size. Uh, I don't know, square meterage feet, all the rest of it. Uh, we <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're a decent sized state. Uh, it's it's probably a second or third largest state in Australia, and it's it's on the uh, eastern seaboard. Uh, pretty much cuts the country in half, and then in, into into half again, if that makes sense. And yeah, runs from half the country all the way up to the to the northern tip of Australia. So yeah, it's a it's a and we have got a quite a vast um, topographical sort of feel about the state as well. You got deserts, you got tropical rainforest, uh, you got areas that, that get a little bit of snow in the winter, which we're in currently at the moment, um, right up to the tropic. Tropics up north, uh, you know, because it pretty much bumps onto PNG to our north. So, yeah, we're quite a diverse state topographically wise. So if I started up north and drove to the south end of Queensland, how long would that take me? Well, our road system, further north you get, the worse they get. Uh, it's just we don't have the road systems like you guys have. Um, so if you start on the tip of, of Australian drove to the, our border in the south, you could probably do it in 24 hours. Um, yeah, the roads as they sort of get from Cairns uh, north, like, uh, yeah, that they get sort of, they run out from there and then Cooktown and, and whatnot. Um, but, yeah, from that's a rough sort of guide. Um, and obviously as you get south, uh, the roads get better because more population live on the coast and the roads are better and all the I mean, we're not prehistoric, but as you from sort of Cairns North, what I'm trying to say is, you know, there's the dirt roads up to the to the Cape because it's still a uh, frontier type area up there, if that makes sense. Yeah. I'm just trying to give folks a little bit of scope for the yeah. scale of of Australia. Because much like like Africa in in a lot of ways, people in the States here, we, we still talk about Africa like it's a country and yes, really have yeah. no concept of, of how large it is. And, and very much the same with, with Australia. Like we don't talk about states in Australia. And when all the fires were going on, people mm. were like, well, Australia is on fire. It's like, well, parts of Australia are on <laughs> yeah. fire, but yeah, not yeah. all of Australia is on fire. That would be difficult to manage. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no you're exactly right. It's funny because I've, like you, I've spent uh, a fair amount of time in Africa, uh, and it's funny because people just think Africa is one country, and that is South Africa, and and that's it. But it's such a diverse. And Google Maps is your best friend. Just bring up Google Maps and zoom in and out, and you will see all the states uh, of, of of Australia. And then to talk about Africa, you see all the, the different countries within the African continent. You know, the subcontinent, the Northern Saharas. Um, and quite a diverse part of, you know, uh, diverse, dare I say it, planet or, or, or continent, which is Africa. But, yeah, people sort of think, oh, yeah, Africa is one country. No, it is many. And it's funny because not to talk about Africa now, but um, you, you get on an international flight, as you know. Like you'll land in South Africa. You have to get on an international flight to fly to Namibia or to Zambia or Tanzania because they are separate countries. So, yeah, it's classed as an international flight, even though you're in the same continent, but they're different countries. And it's not like countries in Europe, you know, which you can almost skip a rock across in places. Yes. It's like mm. you're going to get on that airplane and you're going to be on that plane and you're going to eat a meal on that plane before yeah, you get yeah. to the next country. Yeah. Yeah. It's big. Exactly. No. 
Yeah. So were you were you were you affected by fires in your area? Uh not particularly where we were. It was an incredibly dry season. Uh and it was mainly down to the south of me and, and to the west of us as well, to where we live. So states like New South Wales, Queensland had its uh its number of, of bushfires as we call them here. Uh, the main terrible ones were New South Wales and also Victoria, just because of a number of reasons. It was we were in the a drought that was unprecedented. Uh, a lot of, um, and from what I'm, I'm sort of surmising here, from what I know, um, we had a lot of dry foliage on the ground through lack of back burning, and yeah, there's there was a number of inquiries uh, that transpired out of that due to the lack of government control or backburning and all the rest of it. So, and a lot of the older generation, you know, saying that we, we went, actually went wrong in managing it because we've always had bad fires. And what happens is, in a nutshell, the hot air in the summer flows through the centre of Australia and causes these incredibly hot winds. Uh, and then that couples with, you know, gro- uh, dry grass and, and deadfall and all the rest of it in the, in the bush. And they're just, it's just a tinderbox and does not take, and then they get dry lightning as well. So no storms, but lightning that kicks off and can set off those fires. Uh, and they can pretty much predict, you know, they'll say, yep, in the next two or three days, it's going to be extreme fire conditions. Uh, everyone has their phone hooked up to a text messaging system and all the rest of it. In, in, if you're in these areas, you know, they will text you and say, uh, you need to be aware, bad fires, um, this time of day or whatever um they're quite they're quite onto it um but still we lost a number of lives from even seasoned firefighters were killed uh trying to battle the blazes we had a couple of u.s pilots that were killed as well and a, a plane went down um the guys were over from the states as volunteers they crashed their plane i think doing some sort of um like the fire retardant run as well. So, yeah, it was quite a, a busy time. But then, that, unfortunately, that all got forgotten because then COVID kicked off and obviously that is everything in the news, as we know. Yeah, we went from uh, from caring about koalas to, uh, mm, mm. to completely forgetting about it really quickly. Yeah. I fought fire, wildfire, bushfires um, all the way through college and, you know, as I finished high school as well and, and paid mm-hmm. for college doing it. And it was a great job, but it is extremely dangerous. And, and everybody oh, yeah. knows going into that, that you're, you are taking part in an extremely dangerous job. And the way that you die doing that job is never pretty. Like nah. the, there's not a, there's not a graceful way to die as a, as a firefighter and everybody signs that bill and, and is willing to accept that risk. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, and it's just very sad when it happens. It is, and it's a it's a it's a brave profession. Like I, yeah, I um in my current role, I'm, I work for a traffic company, and as a first responder, and I deal with uh, crashes and whatnot in the in the Brisbane metro area, and constantly dealing with emergency services, you know, fireys, police, and uh, medics and whatnot. But uh, yeah, the fireys definitely, I take my hat off to them. They earn it, they earn their stripes and earn their wage, and and it's probably a bit of a thankless task as well. Um, like they don't get paid the best, uh, you, but you do those sorts of roles. A bit like the military, as you know, you, you you're not doing them roles for for monetary value. You're doing them because you you for a number of reasons. But it's the 
I guess the the feel good thing of doing something with pride that has a a steeped history and doing the right thing and and you sort of judged on that in a, a stereotype as well I do believe from society that uh, you know oh, if you're a firefighter oh, you you know you're a decent guy sort of thing or person woman whatever <laughs> to sound PC. <laughs> Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't. I wouldn't go so far as to say that they're decent. You know, I, <laughs> having been one and uh, <laughs> around quite a few of them, that might be pushing it too far. But um. <laughs> well, if you go, what I mean is, if you go for a bank loan and, and the bank manager says, "Oh, you're a firefighter. Yeah, right. No worries. You, you, you know, you, you, you're a, a decent, supposedly a decent, uh, sure, uh, upstanding sure. member of the community, as opposed to, um, I don't know." Someone that uh, doesn't work for a living, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, so you served time in, in the military. Did you have any jobs before you went into the military or was that pretty early on in your career? Yeah, I, um, I when I finished high school, um, it was sort of that wake-up moment where uh, – and I always say this and my mother laughs because I, I keep saying to her that um, she'd say to me, Al – uh, go to school, eat your lunch. So that's all I did. I went to school and ate my lunch. I didn't learn anything. So, <laughs> 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 the, uh, so yeah, I, I went to school, played sports, chased girls, um, played more sports and chased more girls and fitted in, you know, time in the bush and, and just being a your typical sort of kid, you know, it was hard for me to concentrate because I was always looking out the window and, you know, whether it be trying to go fishing or hunting or, or whatever as a kid. So, and when school finished, you know, you get that that uh, very poignant moment where the bell goes. You think, "Wow, that's awesome!" Uh, now what? So I was lucky enough to I grabbed the trade. A friend of the family uh, said that there was apprenticeships going down the road for a building company as a as a carpenter. So I, I lucked onto that. Uh, but I had a few friends who were had signed up and were going away to the military, to the army mainly. Uh, another mate of mine, he went into the air force, which you know, he's just a a civilian uniform anyway, but, um, but, uh, <laughs> so I had a three or four good mates went away to the army. I got this trade and it was always, it was always in the back of my mind that I would, you know, I was constantly reading books on, on the military, um, on the first Gulf War, that kind of thing. Um, history books, cause I've always been a fan of history and geography as such. Uh, then I finished my trade early cause it was a four year apprenticeship. Uh, finished it in three years, and then I signed up and, and went away to the army from there. How does the military kind of break down in Australia? So here, here in the states, you know, we've got Army, Navy, Marine Corps that that are the military, and then we have the Air Force that I think the um, like mostly just do like air conditioning tours, but yeah. they also have ice cream. Um, yeah, they do also have the Warthog, which is a terrific aircraft. Um, so I guess, yeah, there's a portion of the air force that's in the military and then we have the coast guard and then I guess it's like girl scouts, boy scouts after that. So how does it break down <laughs> in Australia? Well, yeah, we've have, we have our, well, they call it the defense force because obviously we're an island. So since world war two, we've been, uh, defending our shores as such from local incursions, whether it be Indonesia, China, uh, Japan during world war two. Uh, so obviously we have a, a, they call it a defence force, but inside that we have the Army, the Air Force and the Navy. Uh, obviously, being an island, we've got a decent-sized Navy uh, 
It has been, it's called a Royal Australian Navy because obviously we're a Commonwealth country. Uh, the Air Force ship, they are quite quite handy as well. Um, we used to run the F-111s, which even when they, uh, if anyone knows planes, the F-111 was still um, a kick-ass low-radar bomber that um, up until retirement, nothing could match it in its capabilities. Uh, I think now the Air Force have signed up. We're going, we've got F-18 Hornets and then we're going to go to the new, oh, what are the, I'm just trying to think of the new planes. That, oh, Boeing, is it Boeing, the Raptors? I'm not that skookum on, on fighter planes. We're still working yeah, on the F-35. It's... I don't know if we've even got that thing operational. Okay. I just, I'm pretty sure it's called the Raptor. Anyway, I'm not a plane guy, but I know we're getting a good bucket full of them. Uh, yeah, and obviously that we've got, we used to have leopard tanks in the army uh, and labs and whatnot based on what you guys, but now we're rolling with um, Abrams. So all our Abrams are all based on the northern region because that's obviously where our biggest threat is if our friends and northern neighbours decide that Australia was going to be the next Indonesian island. Uh, and, yeah, that's that's where all our armoured units are based and they're, again, running labs, um, older or upmarket APCs, labs, and the M1 Abrams, uh, which I think you spent time in, yeah? Yeah, that that was my main squeeze. Um, I was a an M1A1 Abrams uh, platoon commander. So I had four of those things. And yeah, when right. I was in, when I was in Afghanistan, the Marines had one company of tanks there. I think the mm-hmm. Danes had a company of tanks that never yep. left the wire. Um, so we had the only tanks in the entire country that were actually out doing things. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, that is pretty much our makeup. Uh, our... Army pretty much uh, has been in a lot of conflict since we were federated as a country. So we went and fought in the Boer War in South Africa. That was our first um, deployment as a as a country, uh, and that was, you know, obviously on horseback fighting the Boers in South Africa. Uh, and Australian troops handled themselves extremely well, as well as the New Zealanders, you know, because we were outback style. You know, everyone was on horseback. Um, it was just part of our our ethos, our, our culture, pretty much. So we we took it to the Boers at the time because they were the enemy. Uh, this day and age, we're actually quite close to the South Africans um, for a number of reasons. But, yeah, that uh, – and then it, throughout history in the last 100-odd years plus, we've punched above our weight in a number of different armed conflicts, uh, Korea, World War One, World War Two. I should say, World War One, Korea, World War Two, uh, obviously Vietnam – uh, a lot of little peacekeeping skirmishes we've been involved in in sort of our region as well. Uh, and then obviously the big ones at the moment, which is Iraq and Afghanistan, we've held our own there as well in, you know, the limited capabilities that we can as a small country, but also to, um, yeah, help our allies and, you know, stand on the neck of terrorism and general assholes that are criminal elements that carry a, a weapon to. What was your specialty in the Army? I was in the infantry, so I signed up, uh, did 10 years, or just shorter, 10 years, nine years, something in the infantry, served in 1RR in Townsville, which is 1st Battalion Royal Australian Regiment. Uh, in that time, yeah, it was all, we're an infantry battalion, so we were considered light infantry, so uh, helicopter insertions, helicopter extractions, that classic um, 
Vietnam sort of green roll. Uh, that was our, our mainstay, our, our bread and butter. So we did a lot of our, our jungle training up in a place called Tully, which is up in the tropics, not far from Cairns uh, in far north Queensland. It rains. They measure the rain there in metres, so not in feet and inches, but in metres. That's how much it rains there a year. Um, and as the saying goes, if you can operate in the jungle, you can operate anywhere, whether it be open country, desert, savannah, um, yeah because it's just incredibly, everything is difficult in the jungle from, you know, nighttime, daytime. Everything tries to bite you, sting you, eat you, uh, drown you, put a rash on you or suck the living life out of you. Um, so and that a lot of those tactics that we uh, are still implemented today uh, were just born out of when we had uh, operations in Places like New Guinea uh, during World War II, all the all the islands, uh, and then Borneo, uh, Malaya uh, against the Indonesian incursion that we had there back in the fifties, um, and even in World War II, we had a lot of uh, our commando units were raised, and they would just be parachuted into an island in the middle of nowhere with, you know, a cyanide pill, a, a commando dagger, a small radio. Um, a cut and cut down shortened 303 and just told her yeah you parachute in there rustle up some local local uh sympathizers and go and kill japs that was their <laughs> that was their orders so and that yeah like i said all our, our jungle training and whatnot has, has derived out of that and which has held us in good stead because when vietnam rolled around we were there for 10 plus years uh, in the southern province provinces of of Vietnam and held their own there as well. Um, so a lot of people don't realize it. That's incredible. And I don't really want to just gloss over that. I want people to take just a second and think about what your job is and then compare that to somebody giving you a freaking cyanide pill, a knife and a parachute and saying, <laughs> all right, with the, with these tools, go fight a war. Like, yeah, holy yeah. crap. If anyone wanted to look up the Australian War Memorial, uh, they have a website. Uh, there's heaps and heaps of books and, and, and stories and, and little documentaries and whatnot on, on guys who are actually doing that, you know. And a lot of them are never seen again, um, whether it be injured on parachuting into a jungle terrain, captured by headhunters, you know, that were working with the Japanese um, or the Japanese would get them and, you know, shoot them as spies or cut their heads off. A lot of them guys were never seen again. A lot of them were seen again. Uh you know, one example is a commando unit. They had a, a small Indonesian fishing vessel that they sailed from Sydney up the Cape uh, into, I think it was, you know, I'm not up to speed with my commando history, but I'm pretty sure they went into the Philippine Harbour and, and blew up a lot of Japanese boats that were stationed there at the time. They did that a couple of times, got caught, um, they were all executed, all the rest of it. So, yeah, because at the time uh, Australia was... We were bracing for invasion from Japan. They were in New Guinea, uh, obviously all the islands around that, Bougainville, the Solomon Islands. Uh, so they were they had their eyes on Australia and they weren't stopping. Um, we stopped them at uh, New Guinea on, on the Kokoda track and drove them back into the ocean. And uh, a lot of those uh, veterans from World War Two, the Stiran, they quite... Uh, with a smirk on their face, so yeah, we pushed them back into the ocean when we shot them on the beach, and they don't deny that because that's just what they did. Um, 
and the Japanese army at the time were undefeatable. Uh, you guys in the Solomons and Gladder Canal were copping a, a hiding off them as well. So they were quite forceful and, you know, as we know, the, the Japanese army at the time were, yeah, they were hell-bent on, on dominating Southeast Asia. And, of course, and Australia had a plan to actually, they called it the Brisbane Line, where we pretty much cut the country in half from Brisbane right across to the west and we we're going to give them all the north of Australia and then basically meet them at the Brisbane line um, and, and, and fight them from there. So, and that's quite hospitable nature, uh, sorry, nature, hospitable country, um, very dry, very arid, a lot of deserts. Yeah, they, they would have been doing extremely well to um, push their way through there. And then obviously the plan was then to cut them off and then encircle them and end them, but they didn't get that far. The... You guys sorted them out with Hiroshima and Nagasaki and a couple of planes that flew there and <laughs> reminded them just uh, who they were playing with. So, Well, you know, Australia was, was strategically critical and I don't, I'm not completely knowledgeable about World War II history, but um, I read a fantastic book called Indestructible. Did you ever come across that one? No. Um, it was, a, it was about a guy named Pappy Gunn and he was, he was retired um, army air force because we, mm -hmm. we ha hadn't had an air force yet, but he was flying for the army and mm -hmm. he was trying to stand up a, a private uh, airline in the Philippines. And okay. he was flying uh, military folks in and out of Australia when the Japanese took the Philippines and put his family in a concentration camp. Yep. And he basically forced himself back into um, enlistment and ended up just bullying his way into building these these bomber aircraft and and really pushing guns hard into these airplanes in ways that they had to like relocate fuel in the aircraft so that he could carry the amount of 50 cals that he was putting in the front of these bombers. But yeah, if right. it wasn't for Australia's location and support, there's no way that that the Americans could have went across the Pacific in the way that they did. You know, it was very yeah. much, it was very much teamwork. And when I was in Afghanistan, um, of course, different war, different place, yep. but the things that we did were impossible without the Australians as well. So I worked with task force 66, uh, the commandos, um, out of Melbourne, I think. And they're incredible. Yeah. Mel, I think they're based in Sydney. I could, I could be wrong. I'm pretty sure they're in Sydney. Could be Sydney. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, and I, I tell people all the time, these guys were the most professional and proficient fighting force that I've ever seen. Absolutely incredible guys. And I yeah, have well, the utmost re respect for them and for you. Uh, by all means, uh, uh, thank you for the compliment. Oh, I wasn't a commando. Uh, plenty of my mates were, um, and I still mates with them today that were obviously served and worked in Afghanistan, uh, as as commando and they they held their own and 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 took it took the fight to the enemy because it they had a, had a reputation to live up to you know they're Australian commandos uh, and just hard working and it, like any selection course is quite a hard course to pass so they yeah they had a different role than our SAS in Afghanistan and they they took it to the enemy which is their job you know commando and they they took their fair share of casualties i lost a couple of mates um that i worked with before they were commandos and yeah we've all lost mates i guess in the in the job but 
um, they, they certainly held their own and they, they took the fight to the end, which, you know, they do not deny that's what they're there for. Um, they're, they're hard charges and, they, and they're like that, you know. Um, they'd rather be out of the wire than in the wire. And it, it's interesting what you say about training in, in the jungle because these guys all painted their faces during operations and they all painted their faces in, in greens and blacks. And mm. there's nothing green <laughs> where we were in Afghanistan except for these dudes' faces. And uh, I, I, I found that in some ways peculiar, but in other ways, it makes all the sense in the world to me from a, a historical and psychological perspective. People have been painting their faces when they're hunting and when they're fighting mm-hmm. for as long as we've figured out that we can put something on our face to change its color. And exactly. I think that it does change your mindset a little bit. And they were very intimidating. These dudes were fierce. Yeah, they uh, they would have been doing it like for all of the above. Um, from day one in the Australian Army, when you stay, you know you take your field craft lessons, it's rammed down your neck. You know, uh, cam up. You know, as in face paint, um, watches covered. Uh, if you're not wearing gloves, you cam your hands up, back of the neck, back of the ears. Uh, everything is to be camouflaged, non rattles, all that sort of stuff. And they are they are literally will jump down your throat and that's just in basic training and then obviously if you go into the school of infantry uh which is where i went you spend a minimum of three months there uh on your your basic infantry course and that again they just honing them skills and heaven forbid if you're halfway through that course and you 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 know wear a watch that someone can see the face on or um something rattles or squeaks or you know, even to the point where water bottles, if a uh, patrol commander or a, a section commander of an infantry section can hear someone's water bottle sloshing on a patrol, uh, be prepared for a slap up the side of the head or at at, at least a, um, a hairy eyeball staring at you going, you better fucking tighten that up or I'm going to knock the teeth <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, Yeah, that's, that's pretty much, yeah. In some of the schools that I was in, uh, you know, face painting was definitely a thing anytime that you were operational in the woods and it was the same thing. Like you, you cover absolutely every single surface, including the inside of your ears. And in the early, like officer candidate school stuff, when, you know, everything is under a microscope, Mm -hmm. if somebody didn't get all of the paint out from the inside of their ears and every little nook and cranny in the 37 <laughs> seconds you had to clean your face before yep. you moved on to the next thing. It's yep, like yep. this giant eruption. How dare you, you know? Yeah. How dare you not be bathed or, or clean in, in my lesson? Yeah. yeah. Been there. Yeah. <laughs> and I've been on, on the, on the giving end of that as well. But, um, when, just to, <laughs> <laughs> when I, uh, when I went through, and this is the sort of the highlight of like, well, I went through in a time, and it wasn't that old. Like I'm only 45. So, and my son is now in the same unit I was in up in Townsville. And my daughter, she is currently living with me now. She's just waiting for her enlistment date. So she's hopefully heading into combat engineers. Uh, so it's definitely in the family. Um, but when I went through, and I'm, again, I'm not that old and not to raise, well, back in my day sort of scenario, but uh, if you're, say you're in a, we'd be doing a, an exercise, you know, and you'd have your directing staff, your your staff that are there running the course or whatever, and they would be standing there with big long sticks about as thick as your thumb, 
because they wouldn't be armed or they wouldn't have a firearm or anything. They would just be walking through watching you do your drills in the bush or in the jungle, whatever. And if you were doing the wrong thing, they should just walk up to you and whack the living piss out of you with this stick. <laughs> you know, and you'd be you'd be laying on your stomach in, in a contact or whatever with blanks, of course. Um, and they would just walk up and whack you with that stick and you'd look at them and, and they would say, you know what that is? Uh, no, Sergeant. That's 762 short slamming into your body. Move over there. Um, so you learn. <laughs> you learn pretty quick. Or you'd be, you know, you'd be writing a set of orders or something on your notebook and the platoon sergeant or whoever's watching you and the, the staff would uh, walk up, same thing, give you a tap with, a, with their little stick going, see that? Yeah. Why aren't you writing your orders on your guts? Oh, okay. So you'd lay down on your stomach and be writing your orders. So, so that's how you learn. Uh, and the soldiering is taken, obviously, quite serious because, yeah, poor soldiers die and lazy soldiers die and they, they're quick to, um, to raise that, uh, those notes and opinions on you. Yeah, sweat prevents blood. It does. Trade hard, fight easy. And it, they, they're all uh, little quotes that we've heard a million times and some people take, uh, take lip service to them, but they work. Um, you know as well as I do that that is the case. Yeah, for sure. So you were deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan? I, I did. Uh, so when I was in, I had three deployments locally. So we went into East Timor twice, which is a UN mission. Uh, in a nutshell, it was East Timor wanted independence from Indonesia. They got independence. The Indonesian army decided they didn't like that, so they then torched the place, uh, handed out firearms to a local militia, got pretty crazy. So we went in there to basically tell them to fuck right off, um, and we did so quite successfully, and we did it in two different roles. So we had a very um, a very UN-sanctioned looking setup where we'd have our blue berets on and, and very overtly um, patrolling. And then we had the what we call green hat where we went out and, and guarded the borders in classic uh, Vietnam style, you know, anywhere from up to 15-day patrols along the border, uh, fully cam, all the rest of it, uh, searching for insurgencies and, and Indonesian uh, at the time their special forces, which is called Capasis, was very heavily involved with the local militia, so we're dealing with those. Uh, and there was a few contacts, obviously, between us and them across the border. Uh, yeah, so that was a classic uh, Vietnam-era green role that we, we, we did um, to, yeah, to remove that, that threat element. So I did two tours of that. Uh, another trip out to the Solomon Islands with a little um, punch-up we had with the people from Solomon Islands, a um, bit of a, a UN peace sort of uh, peacekeeping operation, I guess you could call that. Uh, then I got out, bummed around for a while and uh, weighed up whether getting out was a good thing or not. Uh, and then work come up in the, uh, obviously, the security element, contracting element in Iraq and then in Afghanistan. I started in Iraq running convoys and PSD work there. And what's PSD work for the folks that don't know? Uh Personal security detail, which is basically, I worked for a company called Armour Group when I was in Iraq. We had a, a number of different contracts running convoys, uh, PSD work, and a lot of like a lot of the PSD work I, I did there at the time was actually we moved a lot of army personnel, uh, army stores. You know, a couple of times we'd have captains, majors from the U.S. Army, and we would take them to different meetings because. 
and I don't know how, I didn't sort of get involved with the whys or whatnots of the contracts, but Armour Group had the contract to move certain personnel from point A to point B. And a lot of times it was, from memory, uh, EOD staff on all the uh, outward-lying massive bunkers that were all let go by Saddam when he when the place fell. Uh, so we would take out EOD staff uh, and they would set up these massive big camps in the in different parts of the desert and log and and destroy all the uh, all the ordnance that were just laying there, I guess. So that was that was uh, one role. And then I used to moonlight with the guys from the the convoy teams because uh, they were always short on numbers because they were always getting shot or blown up. So they needed a certain amount of um, expats, Europeans to um, to run with the locals. And uh, yeah, we used to do a lot of convoys from. Baghdad down south to as far as Basra and north as far as Mosul and then out west past lovely places called Fallujah, Ramadi. Uh, yeah, and had had lots of fun, lots, lots of close close scrapes and uh, learned a lot about myself and a lot about people and humanity and good and bad and everyone. Uh, at the time was the height of the insurgency in, a, in Iraq and... Yeah, some pretty ordinary, ordinary days there. Some, you know, and you see some funny shit too. You know, <laughs> some uh, some good times and bad times. But that's that's the world I was in, and that was the um, the path I chose. So I was there probably a year and a half. That contract dried up. Uh, I came home, and then I went and worked. I got offered another contract in Afghanistan at the time, working out of Kabul again with Armour Group. And that was a again another PSD contract where we were driving around Kabul, uh, just taking all the Europeans that were there at the time to rewrite the laws of the country. And yeah, wasn't the best contract I'd, I'd been on. They were actually a pain in the ass to work for. Um, had like these are you know what PSD missions are like. So you, you're trying to give a vehicle to brief to someone that doesn't want to wear the body armor. They don't want to wear a helmet. Um, yeah, and like some of the women would turn up um, in high heels. At the time, Kabul had a very uh, – and Kabul was different to Baghdad where they had a, a still a large number of local restaurants that were still running, you know, and there was a big drinking culture between the expats and, you know, you had to you had to drink at the Gandamak and, and all these different places. Um, so, yeah, you'd, you'd get a job at – seven o'clock at night that such and such client wanted to be taken to the Gandamak for dinner. So you'd have to go there, wait there. And, you know, they would come out heavily intoxicated, drunk. And, you know, you try to say to them, look, we get shot. And if you're bleeding, it's not going to stop. And you need to put your body armor on and need to wear your helmet. And so that caused a bit of a, you know, bit of fraction here and there at times. Um, but yeah, that's the life of a security contractor really. You know, drive like driving around in these countries is not like driving around any place that anyone is listening to this podcast. No. <laughs> uh, IEDs, improvised explosive devices, roadside bombs, um, they are really stressful. And these guys got pretty good at, at placing them and predicting places that you're going to be driving, when you're going to be driving. Oh, yeah. There's all kinds of methods for detonation. And the yep. way I kind of describe it, that that feeling to people, 
It's like, okay, imagine that I put you in, in a square room and you are barefoot in the corner of that room and I blindfold you. And you know that there are 1,000 mousetraps in that room, but there's a path that you can walk and you won't step on any of them. Like, would you be able to do it? And that's like a very small amount of stress because the worst case scenario is that a mousetrap snaps one of your toes. Now, Mm. imagine that that mousetrap kills you and all of your friends. Yeah. And then that's that's your entire life. Like everywhere you go, you're living with that amount of stress. Yeah. And, they, and like you said, they, uh, the, the war on terror, you know, has been kicking off for what, 90 odd years we've been dealing with that. And the lengths that they have gone to, uh, to really upskill their craft at laying IEDs, you know, putting them in places of, you know, human movements, uh, where people would walk, where people would drive, you know, and even, you know, funneling into you, into those elements. Uh, they were notorious for doing it in Iraq where they'd, they'd have a dodgy vehicle, you know, that looked like a car bomb because that's what they used to do in the early days was they just have an old broken down vehicle on the side of the road. And before anyone learned, they would just drive past it and they would just detonate that vehicle and wipe out the lead vehicle or whatever in your convoy. And then they got cunning because then we'd work out, oh, we'll, we'll just, you know, drive around that. Well, then they'd put it on the other side. So, you know, they catch you on the, on the offside, off shoulder and, and hit you that way or they would daisy chain 155 or 105 rounds all along the guardrails and set them off by deck cord. And, you know, you, you got all them, basically it's like a big shape charge just, just uh, smashing you up the side of, the, of your vehicles and that's just the nature of the beast and it's, it's luck. It's, yeah, as you know, it's... I'd rather be lucky than good sometimes, uh, but you're right. It they learn very quickly, and they're constantly changing and upschooling, and, and you know, using drones and and yeah, it's and I my hats off to them EOD guys. Uh, they're constantly trying to reinvent the wheel and, and work out how to better it and how to combat. Because um, yeah, they're not, and some of them are dumb, like obviously insurgents, uh, but some of them are extremely smart, and they're still catching people today. One of the scenarios I was in, I was over watching a road and we had very specific criteria for who we could engage and what action they had to be taking in order to do it. Mm. And I watched this guy come along and dig a hole and then leave. It's like, okay, yeah. can't kill, can't kill a guy for digging a hole. Mm. And then somebody else came along later and put, um, you know, a big yellow jug, which was full of an IED compound in the hole. Yep. And then, yep. and then he left. Can't kill a guy for that. And it went on like that. And I don't want to go through the entire sequence on a podcast mm-hmm. for how an IED gets built, but mm. it went on sequentially with each individual of this team adding a component to it until it was a finished IED. And none of these things was enough for me to be able to legally engage these guys yeah and they, they know that they are yeah they're so they're sharp yeah. on regards to rules of engagement they yeah i yeah what are you so frustrating yeah and they they've been doing that and saying iraq they learned the same in iraq you know what they couldn't what would draw fire to them what wouldn't you know they they're 
their intel is would be just as reaching as on us as what it is, what we have on them. Um, they know, um, you know, just an Afghan was terrible for it where they would get kids and set them on the front of motorbikes and that sort of thing. Um, you know, because we wouldn't shoot them and, and all the rest of it. So yeah, depends on again, what unit you're there as well, <laughs> on whether that actually, um, that would engage them, but yeah, nine times out of 10, they, they know, they know the rules of engagement. They know how to circumnavigate that to do their job. And and while these people are not technologically advanced, they have been at war for every single generation for yep. a thousand years, for two thousand years. I don't know, forever. Yeah, like, war fighting has has been part of their life for their entire existence, yes. um, and they're very very good at surviving. Oh yeah, they're and extremely hard. They, uh, I spent probably a year and a half living in Kabul and you know driving the roads there, um, out to Jalalabad and on all that areas. And Kabul was like the history of Kabul. It was founded when Alexander the Great's army stopped there along the river. That's how Kabul kicked off. Was all the you know the locals then the the army camp was built and then you know the markets, places and all that, that's how Kabul was raised. And there's a wall around Kabul that's, I'm pretty sure, and don't quote me on it, but I'm pretty sure it is the second oldest wall in the world. And, it, and you can see it from Kabul and it sort of goes along the ridgeline. It's very similar to the Great Wall of China, but not as big and not as detailed. Um, but it's this old crumbling wall. Um, and I had people from the British Embassy used to, they used to want to walk the wall and we'd try and say to them, because I had mates on the British Embassy contract and they would say to them, ah, you don't want to do that because, you know, we've got to carry a heavy machine gun and this and this and this just so you can get your photo taken on a wall. Um, yeah, so, again, dealing with clients. <laughs> but yeah, it's, an, exactly. it's an amazing, like Kabul, not Kabul, but Afghanistan itself is such an amazing, beautiful place. Like it's, yeah, where it is, it's um, that whole desert, region snow and it's can be quite striking if it wasn't you know everyone there wanting to kill you or not have you there anyway yeah it was it was different where i was i was on the north end of helmand and okay it, yep. it was just so bleak down there yes it is yeah yeah the, the marines were there a fair bit weren't you yeah that helmet helmand was the was the AO of the Marine Corps for the most part. Because you took over from the British. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we shared that, that main base with the Brits. So, you know, the, mm -hmm. the two times that I got banged up when I went back um, to, you know, Camp Bastion, Camp Leatherneck, the yep. hospital was British and it was on the Bastion side. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that was all, that was all British, which was yeah. nice. You know, there's some, there's some very nice British nurses who, who I appreciate. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, everyone likes a nurse. Well, most of them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, – I still hold a lot of obviously mixed emotions and memories, as you would too, from from that part of the world. Um, yeah, it's certainly a, an amazing place. But like you said, they, they've been fighting there for a long time. And a, a good book to read on that uh, is Stephen Pressfield's book, The Afghan Campaign. It probably you know highlights what their, their culture like is like. Um, Afghan people to a degree. Um, that's based. I you agree. Know. Yeah. Have you read that book? Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah. 
But now, you know, that's, uh, that chapter of, of our lives is, is it behind has. us probably. Yeah. And we're, <laughs> we're, um, we're into hunting. Like, yeah, I've, yeah. I've always been into hunting. Have, have you always hunted? Yeah. Yeah. My pretty much most of my life. Um, my grandfather and, and father, we, well, we, like I said, I grew up in Northern Australia, so there's no, uh, there was deer around, but not on the numbers that we see now. Like they've obviously the populations have exploded now. Uh, but my, yeah, my grandfather, he, he used to shoot, um, dingoes slash wild dogs for the local council. Uh, who he used to work for. He used to have to check all the roads out in the way up in the regions, you know, for flood damage and all the rest of it. So he used to shoot uh, the wild dogs for, and they'd scalp them for the bounty. He actually bought a rifle with all the, the scalps that he got. So he, I've spent a lot of time with him in the bush driving. He actually taught me how to shoot. Um, had my own air rifle as a, as a, I think I was eight when I had my own air rifle. And if I didn't have my air rifle on me, I had me, uh, a slingshot. If I didn't have a slingshot, I had a pocket knife or all of the above. <laughs> so yeah, and then as a as a young fella, you know, it was as I said before, I I couldn't get enough time in the bush fishing. You know, throwing rocks, building bows, uh, slingshots, um, yeah, all that sort of stuff. It just was that was just how I grew up. That's how kids grew up. Where I grew up in a small little town, small little rural town. So yeah. You build your own arrows now. Do you build your own bows? No, I don't. Uh, I have thought about it, and it's just one of them things where, in my mind, if you're going to do something, you've got to do it right. Um, and I, we've the house we got here sort of doesn't enable me to have a full like wood workshop, if that makes sense, in order to have you know dust extractors and all that sort of thing. Because to me, that's how if I was going to build and. There's probably people listening to this going, oh, you don't need all that to, to build bows, and you're probably right, you don't. But as I said, if I was going to build bows, I'd want to do it properly. And and then I look at it along the lines of if I was going to build a, a bow, you know, I don't think I'd be able to build it to the quality that is available now. So why sort of start? Um, whether it's arrows, I've always been a – I've always enjoyed building arrows because it, it, it takes just as much – labor to build a nice uh, set of wood arrows for someone so uh, but I, I don't make them for people anymore but i used to um, but and obviously your, knocking together sorry go your arrows are beautiful like they're they're <laughs> artwork thank you i i do i have you know and i've probably been building arrows for about 15 years i suppose maybe longer um building for friends now mainly uh and my own, I'll just get in a in a mindset where I go, oh, I want to try a different crest, or I want to try a different color variation, or, or whatever. And I'll just build them over, you know, a number of weekends, um, from staining them to to straightening them and all the rest of it. And I'll, yeah, the amount of times I'll singly go back to one arrow uh, to work on it is, yeah, I'd lose count. But I'm probably, I think I worked out, I straightened them from both ends, hand and eye straightening. Uh, along the lines of probably eight times, I think, in my process of building a dozen wood arrows. So, and it's just something I enjoy. You know, like I, when I first got into traditional archery, it was about 20 years ago, I suppose. Now I've been shooting recurve and longbows, but it was sort of the height of, before Snyder got a hold of it, <laughs> it was the height of, uh, 
oh, the traditional bow hunter magazine and, you know, everyone sort of shot, you know, a nice quiver of, whether it be a bow quiver or back quiver of handmade POC shafts. And it was just a nice, nice time to sort of get into to shooting a longbow and recurve. There's a lot of information on there. Um, there was no Facebook, no Instagram. You just had forums like uh, uh, that you could jump on and, and ask a question and, and the help would just flood through, you know, on how to make arrows. Um, and there's also a number of books out there as well that I touched on. But, yeah, this is something I like to do. And there's nothing better than making a good set of wood arrows and going hunting with them and, and shooting an animal. It's just, it's just a good feeling. And then because you can make a pretty arrow, but you've got to make an arrow that can fly right as well. That's, you know, that's uh, paramount. I think that Australia, and granted, I haven't been to Australia. I've not hunted Australia. I was supposed to be there for a month this summer. That's right. I got canceled along with everything else. Mm. I think Australia is one of the greatest hunting opportunities in the world. It is, mate. It is. Yeah. It's, it's amazing what you guys have. Yeah. And it's, it's a good location because it's well, – I'll start at the beginning, but the US dollar compared to the Australian dollar is around 70 cents at the moment. So you're going to get roughly 30 cents on top of your dollar um, just for just for being here for the exchange rate. Uh, but not only that, like we've got such an array of – we've got six different deer species you can hunt in all times of the, the year, um, all parts of the country. Then you've got water buffalo. Um, then you've got the other feral species as well, like camels, donkeys in, in the red centre of Australia. You can hunt them any time of the year because they're, they're considered feral. Uh, feral goats, pigs, foxes, um, yeah, you name it. We've, we've got a lot of hunting here that is, is un, untouched. And, and the country, you know, when you say to someone, oh, if you put Australia will fit into the United States quite easily in, in size-wise, about the same size. So when you explain that to an American, they go, oh, okay, that's a decent it's, – it's just not a small island. No, it's a pretty big island. So, But, yeah, we've got a lot of good hunting here. And, you know, there are a few people that uh, run, obviously, hunting operations here. Um, unlike anywhere, I, I, I say to people, if they're interested in, in coming, reach out to someone that's here and, and do your homework because, you know, like, whether it be Africa, the US, Canada, New Zealand, there's always going to be sharks, so just make sure you. And not saying that we're all sharks. Just do your homework on on you know flying halfway around the world to hunt somewhere that is a legitimate hunting operation and in good numbers with good references is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and and Aussies tend to be very helpful in in my experience. Like every time I've asked anybody anything, like you all have gone way out of your way to make sure that I get the answer get connected with with whoever's the expert in that um mm, mm. it's it's pretty cool yeah that's i think that's generally the hunting community like and it sort of stems it can be twofold like people like to help people like us you know whether it be traditional archery or, or arrow building or, or whatever or hunting like it's same as if i was going to go and backpack hunt you know and which i have done um in the u.s i'd be sort of leaning on a couple of guys that have a bit of knowledge and saying, hey, I'm thinking about backpacking into here after elk or, or mule deer or whatever. What do you reckon? You know, you, and because you're from out of state, you're either going to get two responses, nothing, or someone's going to go, okay, well, you go and have a look here because you're not going to be back here for another five years or, or whatever. You know, you can hardly see an Aussie flying over every year for every elk season. Some might, but 
you know, most of us have jobs and a normal working class. So that's sort of, that's how a lot of guys, you know, the way I look at it. Um, and the same as if you were to come over here, James, and you'd say, oh, you know, I really want to hunt buffalo. Okay, well, I'll reach out to a few guys and see what we can come up with in good areas to take you or whether it be red deer or fallow deer or samba or, or anything like that or even New Zealand, like I've hunted New Zealand a couple of times. Uh, but if you reached out to me, hey, do you know anyone in New Zealand? i say, yeah, speak to this guy. If he doesn't know, he will be able to point you in the right direction of someone that does. And, I, and it's a, a thing you, you see a lot as well as swap hunts. So, yeah, that's another good option. And you've written about hunting quite a bit. So in, in addition to being uh, a warfighter and a hunter, you're also an author. Yeah, I, uh, I write for our, our leading uh, – Bow hunting magazine is it's it comes out twice a year. It's quite a thick, big magazine. Uh, I've written a, a number of articles for them, and I have a, a constant back page, sort of a thought grabbing uh, article on. Can be a number of things. I, I wrote one recently on the use of drones and hunting, uh, so a little bit ethically based. Uh, sometimes it's just a short story. Uh, yeah, and then there's a couple of other publications I've written for here in Australia as well as uh, traditional Boana out of the US. I've, I've had a couple of articles published in those uh, with those guys as well. And they're like some of them are uh, hunting here and also hunting in New Zealand and a couple of trips I've, I've done to Africa as well that I've had published. But, yeah, I, I, I enjoy writing. I don't get enough time to do it now, which I'm trying to change, James, hopefully. <laughs> um <laughs> But, you know, yeah, we just seem to be pushed for time and I, I really do need to knuckle down because what I've actually got brewing is a book of short stories. Uh, oh, really? And I, yeah, and it's it's um, – but it's all fictional based, if that makes sense, loosely based on history. So, yeah, that's I, – I need to finish those to get them to a publicist here and to put them into a book of – it's going to be about five or six short stories that are ranged from 5,000 to 7,000 words. Um, and I've got some of them are still sort of half written. Um, I've got notes everywhere, posted notes, notes on my phone, notes on my iPad, <laughs> notes still in my head. Uh, so, yeah, hopefully that'll get done. And I, I, I should knuckle down, mate. I really should. <laughs> I've been a bit slack. <laughs> well, I, I look forward to reading that when you get done. I love short stories. I feel like that is the, the best way to communicate a thought or a feeling people who write novels, like God bless you, but that probably could have been edited. You cannot <laughs> show me a 300 page book that doesn't have 50 pages that you could have cut out of it. Mm, mm. And I, I sort of grew up on, like, I, I love books, got a, you know, hell of a library here and I still buy books and I, I've, I've got an e-reader, um, so I'm constantly reading something, whether it be magazines, books, uh, whatever. And I just, yeah, I, I, I love reading books. I, my, I have an adventurous spirit, so I think I can write something, you know, a little bit fictitious as such on, you know, moments in history with archers or, or warriors as such and, and put it into a decent read that someone, you know, reads it five to 7,000 words and goes, oh, that was pretty cool. And it, sort of a snippet in time, if that makes sense. Um, but I'm no Wilbur yeah. Smith. 
Well, my my degree is in literature and writing, and if you feel like you oh, okay. need uh, another set of eyes, you want to bounce an idea off somebody, I'd be happy to help. Well, I I appreciate it offered, James, and I I probably will flick you one or two just to yeah run you over, mate, and have a look. But you might come back and go, Al, what the fuck are you thinking? <laughs> well, if if you, you give somebody something that you've written for the purpose of editing or developing and they say, Oh, it's good. I liked it. Well, that was completely useless. I might as well mm-hmm. have given it to my dog. You know? Yeah. 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 Now you're, so, you're dead. Right. I'd rather take the, the warts and all approach. Like, and I like, I'm no Hemingway or no Wilbur Smith. So, um, yeah. And my wife, she's an ex or former police officer. So she spent 15 years on the job in drug squads and all the rest of it. And if I give her something to proofread of mine, she <laughs> dead set, she adjusts it like it's a, uh, like it's a police brief going to court. And I just keep saying, her, stop, darling, you're killing me. <laughs> stop, stop. <laughs> this, is, this is not a, this is not a court document. Fucking chill woman. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, yeah, she we we have a bit of a laugh about that because she's very factual, you know. That's the way she because that's what she's had to read and write for her, you know, her her career, her job. And now she's she works for a university, so even then she's quite high up. She has to read factual stuff. Like she can't have any fluffiness in her writing. Whereas I can, you know, talk about how crisp a morning is, um, and she would just go, "Why did you write that?" I was like, "That's." how it was she goes that's too descriptive i said sweetheart it's meant to be descriptive <laughs> tell me the temperature the sky conditions yeah. and move on yeah. Yeah. yeah where was the uh where was the plaintiff standing i don't know yeah, so. <laughs> uh, oh. but, oh, i appreciate that man i'll yeah i'll let you know we'll be in touch on that regard but yeah that's and yeah that's where we're at with that what what is a pathfinder? Well, it's 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 got a number of names really, or a number of origins. The original pathfinders was from a military terminology that was given to the recce element, and I was in recon platoons uh, and recon units when I was in the army. Um, but it was given to airborne recce units during World War Two. They were called pathfinders, um, and they would go in before obviously anyone else and, and recce drop zones or all the rest of it. Uh, the name is, is loosely used in a lot of the African bush wars as well in, in uh, Rhodesia. Uh, yeah, the border wars with Angola and whatnot with the South African Defence Force, they use the terminology there. Uh, and also like it, how it sort of links to that very much... Um, so that Robin Hoodish style cloak, longbow, like a pathfinder would be off into the woods, you know, scouting ahead of, of the main body sort of thing. So that's sort of how that derivative um, has come up with the name of, yeah, my, my business that we've kicked off with my wife. So and I've been brewing on that for, yeah, a while. And, and, and brewing is the word. So tell me some more. Yeah, well, we've... It started off with uh, tough head broadheads. So speaking to Jason, uh, sent him an email like a year ago or, or even more saying, hey, I want to sell tough head broadheads in Australia because he just took over the business. And we got chatting away and he said, yeah, yeah, I'll sell you all the tough head broadheads you want. So Because I used them in Africa and I've used them here and I rate them. They're just a great, great broadhead screw-on and um, glue-on broadhead. 
three to one ratio, kill like the red right hand of God. Uh, so I became a stockist, or, or I will become a stockist for them here. Uh, and then I was sort of sitting down, going, "Oh, I could, I could carry other products and like set up like a little online store as such." So then I, yeah, just spread my wings far and wide. So we are, we haven't launched yet Pathfinder Outdoors. Uh, we've got a, an, an Instagram account. Facebook. We don't do Facebook that much, but obviously we will do because there's a certain amount of people that like the Facebook platform. Uh, my wife is building the website as we speak because um, she's sharper and smarter than me. <laughs> um, but we, we're we going to carry just niche products that aren't here in Australia regularly, if that makes sense. So I reached out to the guys at Selway Archery. I'm going to carry their quivers. Uh, Taito knives. I'm going to carry their line of knives here. Um, who else have we got? We tough head broadheads, uh, Safari tough. Um, chatted to Randy Cooling. I'm going to carry uh, his line of stuff here as well. Uh, Swazi out of New Zealand. So I mean they're readily available here, but I, I'm going to carry uh, some of their products as well that I like and that I use myself. And that's what I wanted to offer: quality gear, quality outdoor equipment that I use myself, that I know works, that I know won't fail, uh, and that I, I swear by that will, you know, stand the test of time in the bush uh, or wherever you hunt around the world because I just don't want to stock products that are shit. I don't want to – I don't like Asian junk. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I don't – I mean, not everything comes out of Asia as junk, but I just don't want to sell crappy products. I want to sell good kit. So, Yeah. When you have somebody who's been in the military, folks, that means that they have had to do some really difficult jobs with some really subpar gear. And there's mm -hmm. there's a complete misunderstanding in the outdoor industry that if something is a mil spec, if this is what the military uses, then it's good. Mm. What that really means is that it was good enough to pass the tests, probably, but it was also the very lowest bidder. And soldiers couldn't break it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ex except that, you know, so much of the stuff we used was constantly broken, you know? Yeah. yeah. I think that even, maybe even especially in combat, 50 to 70% of our energy was spent simply fixing and maintaining things. Exactly. So when you take a guy who's been in this type of environment and then you, you relocate him to, to another industry like hunting, Mm -hmm. The gear that those people are attracted to is absolute no fail. This is the thing to use gear because yes. they've suffered failure too much and mm -hmm. suffered the consequences of it. So when you're picking something out, you know, I, I've never been around that broadhead, but I guarantee you, I'm going to look it up as soon as we're done here, because I know that if that's what you're going to, that that is a high quality item that I need to seriously consider. Hundred percent. You, you, you're dead right, James. And I, I couldn't. And just to touch on on mill, mill spec, and I mean, yes, it has it has its places, and but people, what people need to realise is, is if something is, is selected by the military to use, it has to tick a number of boxes. You know, price, usability, serviceability, um, how much is you know how how quickly can the product be put into service and resupped into service? Uh, so it's a lot of factors have to be ticked, not just because 
it's 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 good you know it, it might be good on one scale but on the rest of the part of the pie it might be shit so and that that's what differentiates a lot of sf units they're buying small so they can go out and buy these gucci awesome bits of weaponry or, or whatever because they're only buying small amounts and they can get it quickly and they know it works and they're not selling to the broader army so but you're dead right i you know we the Australian Army for a long time, and it's still the case. Like we dead set looked like a bunch of mercenaries when I was in Recce Platoon because we had we had South African chest webbing. We had all the only thing issued on us was their camouflage clothing because everything else was uh, was bought external. We had different boots, um, and our CO at the time he he just said, as long as it's functional uh, and and won't let you down in the bush, I don't care. And it's camouflage, I don't care. So we run right with that, um, and it would still be the same today. Uh, the guys would just be having all sorts of, of non-issue kit just to do their job correctly. So that's my background in in, in in stocking kit and items for Pathfinder Outdoors is that's the only shit I want to sell that I know will work, that I know won't fail, and if it does fail, it might be a one-off, uh, and then I'll just honour that anyway as, well, okay, you use the knife as a screwdriver, righto. Have 40% off the next knife and don't be so dumb next time. Um, so that's why I've reached out to guys like Taito. Um, and I've even got some things brewing with Kafaro International in regards to a, a few items that we've we got on the drawing board. I can't say too much. Um, but obviously, and Aaron, I don't know whether you know Aaron that well. Uh, and that's why he carries a lot of weight in the industry because he obviously has a military background, uh, but he tests that. He tests stuff. He tests it in the field environment for, for weeks, months on end, or gives it to guys the same thing that tests it and absolutely pulls something apart and go, this is good, this is good, but change that. So those items, that ethos, that aim of, of quality kit is how we will, you know, sell our business. Um, and, and, and that's our aim and goal is, is the products we sell. So... But yeah, I can't say too much on what I'm doing with Aaron, but we've got some products in development. Whether they carry them as well is up to Aaron, and we haven't spoke about that yet. But yeah, watch that space. We've got some some cool things being jointly collaborated together with. So yeah. good for you, man. That's that's really exciting. I actually just bought my first Kafaru pack. Um, it's sitting right next to me right now. I've got it adjusted. I haven't filled it up with weight yet. But I'm going to take mm-hmm. it out and go hunting uh, in, uh, awesome. yeah, yeah, in uh, just a little over a month. Oh, so. excellent! And I, I was never like I still I have still got my 20 year old Alice pack um, that I've sewn pouches on, and, and because I and I shit off slept with that pack dead set more times than probably my wife because I I just I am so attached to it. It's a great Alice pack. It, it does everything it's got pouches everywhere it's probably you know seen heaps of service heaps of trips heaps of bush time i know it works i as much as i love kafara gear and aaron takes the piss out of me he's like you still rolling that alice pack i said yeah i can't get it's like a faithful dog i just can't i can't walk it down the road yet so <laughs> um but i mean <laughs> i i I'll, yeah i've all of Kafara's gear is is standout, made made to use quality stuff, and um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we get that off the ground this year. We this again, see what Aaron says on their timeline. They're they're massively overworked at the moment, but they're just changing a few things in the in their warehousing. So we should have some a few products in development shortly. But yeah, that's and again, 
to come full circle. That's why Aaron has a lot of, um, I guess, knowledge and um, people respect that because he's truthful. He's not just selling shit because someone's given him stuff or, or offered him money. You know, he, he stands behind what he sells. So I have the same mentality and ethos with our business as well. Uh, but as I mentioned to you the other day, I'm getting into the coffee business. <laughs> I'm excited about the coffee business. I am yeah. <laughs> utterly useless without an amount of caffeine in my body on a daily basis. And it's not like I drink coffee all day long, but it is how I start the day. And yeah. I'm pumped about that picture that you sent me. Like, yeah, are we yeah. allowed to talk about that? That's pretty cool. We can. We can. So I've teamed up with, um, or we, I should say, my wife and I have teamed up with a fellow a veteran-owned, a veteran-operated uh, Australian coffee company called Warfighter Coffee, and they're based up in Townsville, which is where a lot of our army bases are anyway. They're obviously veterans themselves, uh, spent time in the Middle East and all the rest of it, good lads, um, started their own business similar to, I guess, Black Rifle. Uh, they have their own coffee shop in Townsville, uh, and they actually roast their own beans, and they've won awards for a couple of their brews. Um so I sent them an email about oh, a month and a half ago, I suppose, just explained who I was, my background, uh, and that I had an idea on these little drip filter coffee bags. So for those that haven't seen them, and they're not in the US, I do believe. I, I haven't seen them over your way, so hopefully I'll get some foot in the market there, James. But what they are is you, as explained in that photo I sent you, you tear the top off and these little cardboard uh it's like a coffee bag um but you these little ear wing things fold over the edge of your cup and then you pour hot water over the ground coffee that was inside the coffee bag and then that just drips into your cup quite you know not drips i should say it flows into your cup and then just fills your cup up with good quality coffee that's been sealed in an individual bag uh so i spoke to them they're they're keen for it they said yeah let's get this rolling and these little white um, coffee bags as such. They're made in Japan and they're originally uh, made for tea. But the coffee people of the world soon realised, um, hey, they're, they're going to make good coffee bags. So we've got some got some things in place to, to get them made up. Uh, I will have some in your location, James, in under a month, mate. So hold off. <laughs> But if anyone wants to, um, yeah, if anyone follows our, our socials, they'll, they'll see, see some photos up there of what we got planned happening. Well, I'm going to give you just a, a quick Australian warfighter coffee story because I feel like um, this is the most appropriate time to tell this. <laughs> right on. I was on an operation with Australian commandos. Um, it was extremely kinetic. I think, you know, we ended up taking over 30 casualties in the course of just a couple of days. Shit. And at yep. one point we were in, um, in, uh, just a classically ripping firefight as much of a fire exchange going both directions as I was ever a part of, mm -hmm. um, you know, and lots, lots of small arms fire impacting the tank, which is not that big of a deal, but it, you, you are still getting shot and you know, it's, mm. it's intense. Um, and there's a couple, a couple Aussies over behind a wall and, you know, they're, they're shooting a little bit too. And, um, it was, it was getting to the point where one of us was going to have to establish a little bit more of a base of fire so that the other could maneuver. 
Um, and all of a sudden the Aussies quit shooting and I'm still getting impacted by a lot of rounds and some RPGs kind of whistle past. And now, you know, I've fully got my attention at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, and I got on the radio and said, uh, you know, you guys kind of need to get in the game here. And they, uh, they didn't call back. They were busy. So I swing (laughs) the turret of my tank over and, uh, and look at these guys and they'd plop down behind a wall and busted out a jet boil and were brewing up some coffee. (laughs) That does not surprise me in the least. (laughs) No, no, not at all. And they just couldn't be bothered. You know, it was tea time. Like we're, we're going to have, we're going to have a cup of coffee. Um, we're going to get a brew on bush brew. We're going to get a bush. Totally. And, uh, (laughs) And the the dudes we were fighting against broke contact. I guess they figured something big was coming in and they left. And that was the end of it. And at the end of this mission, I ended up going um, back to their base in Kandahar and they gave me a jet boil and said, never, never miss an opportunity to brew up. Like it'll solve a lot of problems. (laughs) Changes your perspective as well. Yeah. And it, it is the absolute truth. Like if you're, if you've got some stuff going on in your life, maybe the solution or the beginning of the solution is to sit down and have, have a cup of coffee. So yeah, I'm excited yeah. to be able to, to support that company. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing that product. No, awesome, mate. All, uh, like you said once, and these are d- the reason I'm doing them is not because of, you know, I want to buy a new Ferrari with the profits of coffee. It is because I, I've used these particular drip filter coffee bags before. I know they work, uh, but they're great for backpack hunting. You can use them at home in the kitchen or, or you know in your workshop, whatever. But they're sold singly in a sealed bag with 14 grams of coffee, that and they will be sold in a 10 pack. So if you're going away for, you say you're going on, on your goat hunt, uh, which I'll hopefully have some to you before then, uh, you just put that 10 pack gusset bag in your backpack and you've got coffee, you've got 10 rounds of coffee there. Um, or if you're going for five days, you know, take five or how many you drink a day, but they're in individually sealed bags as well that are perfect for backpacking and it's good quality coffee. Um, like I said, these guys have won awards for it. That's their thing. That's what they wanted to get into when they, they left the, the defense force. They wanted to get into coffee and they're doing it quite well. Um, and they're a veteran owned business and they're also, they, they send profits back into um, a lot of young veterans' causes here in Australia, so they're not shy in in you know not just taking all the money, all the profits, and and you know oh look at us, we've got a social media following, blah blah blah. They that's just a byproduct. That, you know, a they want to sell a good product, but b they want to help young veterans like themselves. The other day, not the other day, but the other month, they had the prime minister up there in their coffee shop, having a, having a brew with them. So. There you go. The Australian Prime Minister having a brew with some veterans from Warfighter Coffee. Well, that's awesome. Um, where can people find out more about you and kind of follow along with what's happening with Pathfinder and, and with Al Kidner? Yeah, well, I've got um, my Instagram handle is the real Al Kidner. <laughs> In case there's a fake one out there. <laughs> that's my handle on Instagram. And then the uh, pathfinder outdoors if you find one or the other you'll see they're linked but my personal account is yeah the real al kidner k-i-d-n-e-r and uh pathfinder outdoors is is the the business account if people want to go there give it a follow uh click on the link on in the bio and that'll take you to our website um which is still being built uh, as we speak but you can sign up to the newsletter 
keep up to date on our launch dates. And the only reason we haven't launched is that we're just waiting on, because of the world situation with COVID, a lot of our products haven't landed from the US. Uh, they're still in customs, still on their way. Um, the guys from Taito is just sorting out, finalising their order to get some Taito knives to us. Uh, we got our order of Swazi garments the other day, so they're here. Obviously, New Zealand's not that far. But, um, yeah, and it's just getting everything compiled here, uh, and then we're going to launch. I, I just don't want to have products on our website and people go and click on them and they'll go, oh, oh, it's not there, you know, because we're waiting on it to be shipped here. Um, yeah, and we've got another few, a few uh, cards up our sleeve as well, but that's pretty much where people can find us. Um, or even on Facebook, you just look up Pathfinder Outdoors. And the logo is like a, a Robin Hood-looking dude with um, a longbow and a back quiver on, So, which, yeah, I'd drawn up a while back. So that's a great logo that we've hopefully um, gets a brand and gets a bit of a following. Well, I wish you all the best, and I'm very grateful to you for taking the time to talk with me. You're a really interesting guy, and, and you're a great role model for the hunting community. I love following your, your stuff, and uh, I really hope to get you up here and uh, you know get you on an elk or something like that one of these days, and I cannot wait to come to Australia. Well, James, we'll, uh, we'll make that happen. I've actually hunted elk just quickly. I hunted elk uh, back in 2009 in Colorado. Had a great time. Um, put a shot over the back of a a massive big bull. He was huge. Um, so, yeah, I've got unfinished business with elk. But, uh, yeah, and there's a few other critters I want to kill in, in North America as well, and I'm sure you've got a few that you want to kill on my side of the globe. So we can, uh, we can sort something out, buddy. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thanks again, sir. And I wish you all the best. Good on you, James. Thanks for your time, buddy. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Artwork for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatterlin and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.